You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 214 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Al? Oh, I'm all right. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Here is Alison paying lots of attention to the fact that we're podcasting right now. (laughs) No, I I was slightly distracted by the fact that Crusty Pub is... Well, Procrasty Pup is currently going off his nut in the backyard and I'm just wondering if it's, you know, kind of the end of the world or just a crow (laughs) flying over. So it's sometimes a little difficult to tell with him what the actual cause of the crisis might be. Okay. All right. So I think it's a crow. I think we're all right. I think it's okay. I think we're all right. Hello, everyone. How are you all? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. What's been happening in our world? Our world. Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's been actually relatively busy in our world uh, this week, mm. which is, you know, always a good thing. Um, I've got, what have I got? I've got, I've got news. Oh, I answered some questions for the Children's Book Council of America who right. asked me to, yes, I know. They asked me, how's that? They asked mm. me to answer three questions that I wish um, someone would ask me. So not oh. three questions that someone has ever asked me. But three questions, <laughs> three questions that I wish someone would ask me, which I have to tell you was actually really difficult because yes. generally speaking, I mean, I, you know, we, we've talked in the past and I'm sure anyone who follows me on social media or on my blog will know that I have answered over the last few years since the Mapmaker Chronicles first came out about 8 billion Q&As. Like it's a really, I've done curly questions. I've done hard questions. I've done funny questions. I've done 12 questions. I've done 25 questions, like lots of questions. So coming up with three questions that people have actually never asked me, but that I wish that they would was Mm. not easy. Not easy. No, I imagine it wouldn't be, but I like them. So, of course, we'll put the link in the show notes, which you can find at so you want to be a writer.com.au. But if you want to see the answers to the questions, and if you want to obviously see the questions themselves, uh, I think they're awesome. Why do you write predominantly for boys? And also, your books are classed as fantasy slash adventure, but without magic. Why? And why do you like reluctant heroes? They're great questions. And no one's ever I know. asked you. Um, no one's ever partic- asked me. Particularly the first one? No, they've never asked me. They ask me why I use my initials as my <laughs> pen name. So why do I use A.L. Tate, not Alison Tate? And, you know, I usually sort of, you know, 
give up some answer like, you know, it fits better on the cover and stuff. I mean, they're really asking me is do I think boys won't read my books if they're written by a woman? But they never ask me why, as a woman, I write middle grade books with male protagonists. Like they never actually and when and it's a really interesting thing too, because when when there's a big push on about, you know, books for boys and all that sort of stuff, they tend to interview male writers of books for boys. Okay, which is totally yeah. fine. I have no whatever, because it's, it's sort of this thing, but they don't actually ever ask me as a female writer, why I have male protagonists. Um, so mm. I decided I would ask myself. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Great. And I, do you want to know my answer? Because it was a really Go interesting on. question. I do want to know. It was a really interesting question to ask myself. And then I had to actually think seriously about the answer to that question. So there's yes. two, two levels. Okay. So these are my two levels of answer. So the first is that I, you know, the first and probably most super, superficial level is that I have two sons who are now mm. aged 13 and 10. And when I began writing the Mapmaker Chronicle series, you know, they were my readers. I wanted to, um, we had read a lot of adventure sort of, I, I mean, I knew the kinds of books that they liked to read. And I, there were also books that I, you know, really enjoyed, like particularly things like, um, I mean, obviously I've always really liked fantasy, The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, Harry Potter, obviously, I've always loved. So we were reading all of that sort of stuff, but we were also reading things like John Flanagan's Ranger's Apprentice series, which, you know, they just adored because it had that sort of humour and the adventure and the sort of the, the relationship between um, uh, Holt and Will. Holt is the ranger, Will is the ranger's apprentice. Um, so there was a lot of stuff going on in those books that was just, you know, really fun. So I, when it came to write the, the Mapmaker Chronicles, it was kind of like right from the start I had this idea about a race to map the world and I had this boy who really didn't want to go because if you were going to be dragged off on a map-making expedition, you know, in this historical timing that I had set this, you were going to be a boy. Fortunately, yeah, yeah. We also have Ash, the stowaway, um, who decides that, you know, really it's not fair that it should only be boys who go off on these things. So, you know, so that I was writing it with, with, you know, this sort of ideal reader in my head. I was writing for my own boys in a way, like a generalised universal version of my boys. Um, yes. So I think, you know, without them, I probably wouldn't even be a children's author without those boys. So that's that was sort of like one level. But on the mm. other level... You know, I'm a mum and I know I know how parents buy books and I know that if you um, – so lots of – I mean, I am not this parent. I give my boys lots and lots of different types of books, probably because I'm also a writer, but they get books and they're happy to read books with girls – in the you know in the lead roles, girls taking the taking the lead, leading the adventure, because I give them the book and I say this is a great book, you will really like this. Um, mm. and to the point where my older son, Book Boy, who has the book review blog, um, regularly writes posts about you know five books for girls that boys will like, and we get emails from people every time he reviews a book that has a um, has a girl as the main character. He gets an email or a social media comment of some kind saying, it's so great that you read books for girls. And I just like, yeah. well, I think this says a lot about the attitude that's out there. So um, so it's, it's a, you know, I acknowledge that while girls will read books with male protagonists, boys rarely, unless they are very strongly encouraged, will pick yeah. up books with female protagonists. So mm. as a writer and as a parent, you know, who deals with this, the best way to bring boys into contact with fantastic girl characters is to put those characters into books that boys will read. 
So the girls in my books are amazing girls. You know, they they have their own battles. They have their own role to play. They have very definite characterizations of their own. They are not there for decoration. They bring their own strengths and weaknesses. So in the in the Mapmaker Chronicles, we have Ash, who is just you know she's the conscience she's the, she's more courageous more determined than Quinn in many ways and he acknowledges that like he's mm. he he understands the support that he gets from having her with him and in the Adaban cipher we have Gabe who you know is an absolute babe in the woods and would not survive without mm-hmm. these four girls that take him under their wing so you know I think and the, the I guess the message subconsciously because you know you're not preaching and I'm not there to I'm not there to solve the quandaries of the world I'm there to tell a story at the end of the day but my heroes understand that they are not always the smartest person in the room and I think and understand that we are better together and so that was quite an important once I actually it's funny because you don't often know what you're thinking until you write it down if you're me Mm. um once I got all of that down as an answer I was like why has no one ever asked me this question before (laughs) Yeah, it's anyway, such a good I technique for them to ask you that, to ask you to think of the questions that no one has ever asked you because you, know, I know. you end up with I something know. very original. So um, fantastic. Yeah. But, like, if you want to read the whole thing, we'll put the link in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, read the whole thing and just, you know, I'm not going to bore you with any more details. I think we've done that um, and we can move <laughs> on now. <laughs> so big shout out to all of our wonderful listeners who've joined our Facebook community. It's free to join. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and we'd love to see you in there. It's such a great group of people. I just love all of the conversations about writing and about chocolate and banoffee. Uh, that are and so many there. NaNoWriMo winners. So wow. many. Let us acknowledge. Oh, oh. So many, so many NaNoWriMo winners. I, I've just yes. been – and it, I've been, like, thrilled with the way that um, everybody's, you know, supported each other through the whole thing. I think we had a winner with uh, – or Anne Tavares was a winner. I think uh, Adam Harper was a, was a winner. Shannon Morrison was a winner. Effie mm. – I'm sorry, Effie, I really – Catra Casos. How's that? That sounded all right, didn't it? Effie Catracazos was a winner, like so many winners. It's just brilliant. I'm so incredibly excited and proud of you all and I love the way Mm. that you supported each other through it. I just think, you know, fantastic team. Shannon Morrison with an overly dramatic full stop can officially (laughs) call NaNoWriMo 2017 completed. Love it. There were laughs. Tears. That's awesome. That's awesome. So we also have something that's going to be happening every Wednesday in our podcast listener group. Isn't that right, Al? Oh, yes. Okay. So um, as you know, we have quite a strong no self-promo rule in our um, So You Want to Be a Writer group, which I think is a great way of just keeping everybody together and focused. But we are going to have a new feature every Wednesday. Um, It's going to be called (laughs) Imaginatively (laughs) Wednesday. Seriously, like you'd think between the two of us we could have come up with something better than this. However, it's going to be called Wednesday Writing Post. I know, seriously, people (laughs) gobsmacked with our creativity. All about clear clear communication. (laughs) Clearly. Um, So it's going to be called Wednesday Writing Post. It's going to be an opportunity for anyone in the group to share their latest 
latest blog post about writing, specifically about writing, um, with everyone else. So, you know, people can visit your blog, have a look at what you're doing. Gives Val and I an opportunity to see what you guys are doing, you know, what's happening on your blogs and things like that. Hopefully will give us things to talk about down the track because, you know, we're always looking for great writing posts to discuss. Um, So it's going to start next Wednesday, uh, which if you are listening to this at any time that is not today, is (laughs) – (laughs) she says checking her diary Wednesday the 6th of December yes Um, and it will go up as soon as Al remembers to do it on a weekly basis so keep an eye out for that and if you've got to write a blog where you've got some posts about writing then you know choose your best one and pop it into that post so we can have a look now, a great example of that is actually a uh, post that was written by Michelle Barakoff, and it's five reasons to enter a literary prize. And Ooh. we'll put that link in the show notes. But she has been – she has entered a literary prize and, mm. uh, you know, has been shortlisted. It's, you know, very exciting. And her five reasons are, number one, your novel will be better for it. And that is so true because it kind of makes you try a bit harder, I reckon. Um, she says, the intense <laughs> editing process I put myself through gave me the impetus to apply the same ruthless edit to the rest of the manuscript, a lesson I wouldn't have learned quite so thoroughly without the precise expectations of the Rochelle Prize as my goal. And she also says, well, what's the worst that can happen? Which I think is a really great thing to think about. So many Mm -hmm. people think, um, oh, you know, but what if this happens? Well, what's the worst that can happen? But, of course, on the flip side of that, she says, what's the best that can happen? I think the answer is obvious. Yes. Um, You know, yeah, you can win. Uh, you also you'll make new friends and that is so true not only the people who want to support you of course the and the strangers who want to support you uh on social media and stuff but but also the people that you will meet in the process because ultimately if you are shortlisted or longlisted you will get to connect with those people and you have a shared experience as well and and finally she says get yourself a new plan a she says, you've gone to all this trouble, maybe even been long-listed, but the prize remains out of reach. Having something else to aim for takes the sting out of failing. Preparing my manuscript for the prize has got it to a stage where it is almost ready to be pitched to an agent or publisher. So there's my new plan A. Yeah, so here's the thing is that uh, it also gets you on the radar of, of so many mm. more people than if you didn't. Uh, into the literary prize. So that's an example of the kind of writing post that we might be looking for. Um, it has to it has to be it has to do with writing of course it has to be something to do with writing Uh, and we'd love to see you share your share your posts but in the meantime another exciting development in in Al's world am I allowed to do this Al if I post a photo of um your book on social media yeah you don't have to post a photo of my book I can just like bring it to you (laughs) do you want to tell people what's going to happen we better explain what we're talking about (laughs) did I just call you a goober on national podcasting I think I might international podcasting (laughs) did you just call me a goober I might have (laughs) do you remember um is it still around goober grape do you did you I don't even know Oh, my God, I loved it. Goober grape. It's, what is um, it? I don't even know what it is. It's goober grape. It's with peanut butter and and gel, peanut butter and jam in the same jar. Oh, yuck. 
really? No, it's not yuck. And it was just the, the, <laughs> the jam was like stripy mixed with the peanut. Well, it wasn't mixed because it was like, you know, stripy. There was like stripes, like what a stripe yeah. of peanut butter, a stripe of the jam, a stripe of the peanut butter, a stripe of the, I don't know how. You can still get it, Val. You can. Oh. You can buy it on eBay. 510 grams. It's it's made by a company called, are you ready for this? Yeah. Smuckers. Smuckers. <laughs> S-M-U-C-K-E-R. Smuckers, Gooba, peanut butter and jelly Ooh. grape. 510 grams for $5.96 from ebay.com.au. Wow, okay. This is not this a sponsored is post. Not sponsored. I just, you know. I've never heard of it. I, well, I did call you a goober and I had no idea that, that it was like a purple and yellow striped jar. So that's pretty good. Yep. I used uh, to eat it. Anyway, what we were talking about, let us just segue yeah, back, sorry. you know, very, very gently to where we were. Um I've got a special offer on at the moment uh, that if you have bought a copy of the Book of Secrets or any book in the Mapmaker Chronicles series for Christmas, if you post a pic of the book to my social media, so either onto my Facebook page at Alison Tate Writer, um, on Instagram or um, on Twitter, uh, I will send you a signed bookmark to go with your present when you have it under the tree or whatever it is that you do. So the offer is open until the 10th of December, just to make sure that I can post it in time. Um, And of course, if you don't have a copy yet, you can buy one, you know, via my website at alisontate.com. But, um, yeah, so if, you, if you're keen, uh, I, the post is pinned to the top of my Facebook page, but I will also share it into the um, Facebook community so that you can uh, find the instructions quite easily right All there. Right. And Let's... I will just – Val will just be getting one for Christmas. I... Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome, awesome. All right. So the big news around the internet this week has actually been, and of course I think it's big news, but literally there's been so many posts about this, about the new update for Scrivener. I know that not every listener is a Scrivener user and I'm slowly trying to convert Al over to Scrivener, but Scrivener has had an update, a huge update, and people are finding it pretty exciting. (laughs) Why, Val? Why are they finding it exciting? Tell us. Well, a couple of reasons. So one handy feature is called Dialogue Focus. So it actually just, you know, at the touch of a button or click of a mouse or whatever, I haven't tried it yet, but I'm going to, um, it lets you pick out all the dialogue within a project. So you can purely just hone in, like it'll somehow highlight just the dialogue. So you can see your only your dialogue. And one of the reasons I think this is particularly useful, especially for new writers, is because a lot of the new, I mean, manuscripts from new writers that I read, um, can be really dialogue heavy. And when you can just visual, it, when it can visually show you how much dialogue there is and as, as a percentage or, you know, like you can just see how much, how, uh, whether, whether your manuscript is predominantly dialogue, I think that that's a really handy tool or whether a particular chapter has heaps of dialogue and one has very little and I think that that's also a handy tool. But, it, yeah, it lets you um, pick out the dialogue within a project. project. It does um, – uh, it um – it's just got more tools if you want to, if you're if you've got a research heavy kind of um 
manuscript where you've got lots of detail and research that you need to store somewhere, but you don't want to store it in a separate Word document that you lose or um, that, that you can't find, which used to be my problem because I can tend to do research heavy things. And I love mm. the fact that it's all in one project, all in one app. I can color code, I can do timelines, I can, you know, um, uh, arrange things via index cards on the corkboard. Very, very handy. And of course, you can export it in whatever way makes sense for you, whether you want to export it as a Word document or or export ready as um, for EPUB, you know, ready for Kindle. So very, very handy stuff. I'm really keen to try it out. I'm going to pay the extra because as an existing customer, um, I you do have to pay for an upgrade, not the full amount. I think it's like twenty five dollars. If you're a new customer, you'll just you'll just get it for your forty five dollars. Um, but remember, you can get and this is not sponsored in any way. You can get a free trial for thirty days. I love okay. Scrivener, so I have I had to share about that. I know Natasha Lester, who teaches the course, designed the course, the Scrivener course for the Australian Writers Centre, was um, like. She was so excited. Like she was all over social media going, oh, my God, you've got to try this and it does this and it does that. And it, <laughs> yes. Which uh, I, I just, I I'm laughed. Super keen to try it out. Uh, I'm going to be downloading it today and I shall report back after I've had a chance to really put it through its paces. Righto. All right. So we have a, uh, a link to a book award speech. Isn't that right, Al? Uh, we do. So it is Annie Prue's uh, National Book Award speech, which was uh, recent, like in the last week or two, and it's been uh, talked about as like one of the best National Book Award speeches in recent memory. That's what it's called on Vulture.com. Um, I guess the thing about it that I I thought was, you know, I mean, she's pretty amazing. Her books are amazing, and you know, like she's she's kind of entered the cultural, you know, lexicon in such a big way. And I think one of the most interesting things about it is that she didn't actually start writing until she was 58. Yeah, my God. So she picked up this award for lifetime achievement and she says, you know, her opening line, although this award is for lifetime achievement, I didn't start writing until I was 58. So if you've been thinking about it and putting it off, well, dot, dot, dot. So I think it's – no, it's never too late. And she talks about, mm. you know, she goes on to discuss, you know, where the world is and the fact that we're, you know, just inundated with messages and, and you know, we observe social media's manipulation of, of the population um, and the way that while, you know, the universal communication brings us together, it also divides us into different tribal cultures. And I just, I don't know, she's an incredible writer and I think her mm. she has quite, you know, spare prose. I really enjoy her books, um, but I just think her speech is worth having a read just to see, you know, where she's up to, what she thinks, what she's, you know, looking at, and um, mm. and I think that it's definitely worth um, worth reading. Yeah. yeah, and also just taking her as an inspiration. She didn't start till she was fifty-eight, so yeah, you know, absolutely. If you're not published yet, it's it's never too late. You you know, you can change yes. the world. From fifty eight onwards, if you if you um if you're Annie Prue, do you know what I mean? So yeah, I think maybe that's, that's right. worth thinking about. And no matter you know, people say, oh, but you know, I needed to have started earlier. It's too late for me. That's just simply not true when it comes to writing. It might be too late for you to become an Olympian track runner, but it's yeah. just not the case <laughs> when it comes to to, to writing it's at really all. Too late for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. Sorry to break it to you, Al, but yeah, you're you're not going to become an Olympian truck runner. I'm just um, I know, devastated. But <laughs> oh my God, let us move on to something I am yes. so excited about. I am so excited. I'm so excited. Oh, oh but it's, no, sorry. Are you excited, Val? <laughs> I'm so excited. This is. Oh my God. Okay, our giveaway this week. Okay. Yeah, I'm I ready. Have, on my desk, a signed copy of Tom Hanks's new book, Uncommon Type. Get out. Signed? Signed by Tom Hanks himself. Not signed by someone else. Signed by Tom Hanks, the real Tom Hanks. I have a copy. Yes, I could be selfish and I could keep it myself because you know, I love typewriters. And of course, this book is a collection of um, short stories uh, by Tom Hanks. And he is an unashamed retro vintage typewriter devotee. But these short stories are linked by one thing. In each of them, a typewriter plays a part, you know, sometimes a tiny part, sometimes a central part. And Uh Uh, The blurb says, to many, typewriters represent a level of craftsmanship, beauty and individuality that is harder and harder to find in the modern world. In his stories, Mr. Hanks gracefully reaches that typewriter-worthy level. Now, I have a signed copy of the book. I could keep it for myself considering I'm a typewriter obsessionist as well. But this is our competition this wow so if you would like that because that's the kind of girl i am i want to share the love (laughs) (laughs) and if you want to win a copy signed by tom hanks then just go to writercenter.com.au slash win entries close on the 11th of december so remember go to writercenter.com.au slash win and i can't wait to see who is going to win it also if you enter I'll tell you a secret. Anyone who enters will also receive a secret promo code to get $90. That's a lot. It's almost $100. $90 off off the course Short Story Essentials because we also encourage you to write your own short stories. And, of course, you know, with the course, it's a self-paced course, so you can start any time. So when you've got some time in your Christmas break or whatever, that might be a great time to to do the course and write your short story. But anyway, Tom Hanks is in the house. I'm so excited. There. Where did you get a copy from? I'm just – I'm amazed. Connections, mate. Connections. Mate. Look at you go. (laughs) Mate. (laughs) All right. Now, after that excitement, Al, can you get more excited? How could anything be more excited? I don't know if I can can get more excited. Can I? Okay, I can. All right. I'm ready. Are you ready for the word of the week? (laughs) (laughs) My levels of excitement have just gone stratospheric. Awesome. Yes, Val. I'm ready. Okay. Hit me. Okay. Have you to use this nugatory? That's N U G A T O R Y. Nugatory. No, I have never used the word nugatory in my life. It sounds slightly distasteful. Uh, 
So this is not what happens when purgatory and chicken nuggets get together and have a child. And it's not, you know how people say negatory when they mean no. It's not that. This word actually means of little value or worthless. So you might say he made a nugatory contribution to the debate. Hmm. Nugatory. There you go. Like See, it. I didn't think of nuggets. I thought of nudeness yeah. and purgatory. Yeah. So I had this, I had oh. nude, nude purgatory happening oh. in my head, but okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nude purgatory. <laughs> Shall we leave that right there and move on? Yeah. Yeah, let's move on. All right. Who's our writer in residence this week, Al? Oh, my God, I'm so excited. I can't even begin to tell you how much I enjoyed this interview. Um, I spoke to Jackie French, who is, of course, you know, amazing Australian author of over 200 books. Let's just take Mm. a moment to just take that in. She was the Children's Laureate in 2015 and 16. This is a woman who just knows her stuff. And I am willing to admit right here, right now, that I was completely schooled. I just, all I could do in this interview was just to sit there and listen and go, just tell me more, Jackie. Just keep talking, Jackie. In fact, I think I asked about three questions the whole way through. I honestly feel like, because I... Just and and let me just take a moment here to say listen very closely to her three top tips for writers because I am willing to place a bet here that she has given us three tips we haven't had before, which yeah. after 200 and how many episodes have we had? 200 Four million two. episodes mm. or approximately um, was kind of, yeah, I was, she's extraordinary. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Jackie French is an Australian author, historian, ecologist, 2014-2015 Australian Children's Laureate and 2015 Senior Australian of the Year. She considers herself an honorary wombat part-time. Jackie has written over 200 books for adults, young adults and children of all ages. I'm not allowed to mention her first book or how it came to be published because after 25 years of telling that story, she's a bit bored with it. But we are going to talk about her latest books and, of course, writing. So welcome to the program, Jackie. Thank you, Alison. I feel very honoured to be speaking to you because you are, you know, a hero to many children's authors in in Australia. So we're going to start out by talking about your writing process because you've written a large number of books over your career. Do you have a set routine for how you approach a book now or is it still every book is different? Every book is different, but yes, there is a routine. Um, Sometimes, and not magically, a book appears almost fully formed. But after about 200 books, I think that's happened three times. But I have to emphasize almost. Um, Not coincidentally, those books were ones on themes I've been thinking about probably since I was 10 years old. Um, writing short stories for scribbling notes, looking at people, um, just simply asking people for their stories. Um, they were books that had been brewing in my subconscious for a very, very long time, trying to find a way that would be even slightly adequate to cover the themes. So I think more or less all of the things I've been thinking about went ping. 
but more often the normal process for a book is that I get an idea for a book. It is an idea for a book. But the problem with an idea is that book ideas don't shoot down from the um, ether or, or the, the space between the stars into your brain. They have to come from somewhere. And the problem with that is that they so often come from something that's actually thin, um, not sufficient to hang a book onto, um, or even is actually secondhand ideas that someone else has used, but you can see another way, um, a better way, a richer way to explore that. But that original idea is not enough for a book. I don't so much redraft my books as many of them. What I tend to do is I get the idea, okay, this is where it is going to be set. I even have a character um, that it's going to be set around. Though, of course, that protagonist can change in several of my books. Um, the character who I thought was the protagonist has actually turned into, well, not a minor figure, but certainly not the major figure. So for about three years, I actually think about that book, and particularly because so many of my books are historical books, um, I work out the feasibility. Um, the one I'm working on now involves um, a journey from England to Australia in 1810, um, then a journey from um, Port Jackson right down to WA, and then back again by a small boat. And so there is a lot of feasibility in that, um, including what women are going to do at what size the boat is and a whole range of other things. So I did spend three years working on the feasibility of this, the timing of this. And oh, the fascination of that too was um, it all came from just a one tiny paragraph I was reading in the government orders um, of 1810 and I suddenly thought, realized that had never, this major thing had never, ever, ever been in any history book that I'd read. No one has actually realized this was happening. Um, I asked a friend who'd actually worked in an associated area and she said, oh, yes, in 1810, but I suddenly realized it's there, it's there, the story is there. And no one has noticed it either in history um, or, or in fiction. So... Yes, I was really just working out the whole feasibility of this, how it would have happened, when it could have happened, etc. Um, after that, I worked out roughly the plot, worked out roughly the characters. Um, I'm now at the stage of writing draft one, but draft isn't really the right word for that. Um, yes, I will write the book, but it's primarily plot. It is mostly how this is going to happen, what happens next, what happens next, what happens next, where it happens, etc., etc., etc. After that, I will look at it again and make it richer, make it more original. The whole thing in draft one is no, not one-dimensional. I mean, after so many years, I'm, I'm a good enough writer. So, look, it's, it's not a bad book in draft one, but it's the next 56 rewritings that really make it a good book. Um, it's taking the characters and working out, not what I want them to say, but what they would have said. Um, it's changing the characters. In the last book I wrote, which went off to Lisa um, about three days ago, um, it's the sequel to Facing the Flame, the last in the Matilda yeah. series. 
And was that one? Yes, I wrote it. But the rewriting over and over and over, there is one, one character in it called Fish. She was called a queer fish when she was six and decided she liked the name. And I wrote Fish as someone that you might say is on the spectrum without actually saying which spectrum she is on. But I suddenly realized, I think it was probably about draft nine, um, this is someone who longs for more than the truth. She loves the truth. She, She ferrets the truth. She gets deeply, incredibly emotionally upset if people are lying in either fact or emotion. But I realized she also needed to create the truth. Otherwise, she was actually just going to be passive. Mm-hmm. She was just reacting. So actually, who is this girl? And I realized she was an artist, but a particular kind of artist. And I won't say here what kind of artist she was, or also partly because Lisa might say, it doesn't work, it doesn't work, and it's going to be another 56. <laughs> but look, by the end of the book... Um, this character was um, a multi-layered, rich, fascinating character, and hopefully everyone is, is longing to know um, what is going to happen to this girl, who is only one of, of many characters. The book, the book is told from the point of view of, of six people. Um, on draft two, I was afraid it was a bit boring, so rather than um, three corpses underneath the burnt church, I decided to put more corpses underneath the burnt church. Um, By the way, I don't think it's boring. Um, I'm dyslexic, so all of my work goes to Angela to correct the typos and the spelling before it goes to HarperCollins, for which they are enormously grateful. They don't have to ring me up and say, "Um, page 36, what's that word? And I say, that's hippopotamus. But Angela very rarely comments on my books. But with this one, she she just said, oh, wow, adrenaline jag. It's riveting. Couldn't stop Um, with the the correction. So, um, and that actually... That is a problem as well. When you are writing books that you hope are going to be page turners, people are going to really want to know whether because of the plot or the character, what is going to happen next. The problem is with 56 drafts, you really know very, very well what is going to happen next. And after 56 drafts, you think, this is boring. Um, you forget, of course, that there is the tension as people turn the page. Um, but that's probably not a bad thing because, again, in the, in the layering, adding more tension through it, making sure that um, at so many points through the book there, there are... Well, it's really breaking narrative expectation to make it a page-turner. You know when you watch... Um, something on TV, um, there's, a, there's a middle-aged woman taking her golden Labrador for a walk in the morning and she's walking by the lake and the mists are coming up and everything is lovely and suddenly the dog goes woof, 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 woof and she calls back, yes, but come back, come back, come back. And of course, what is the dog doing? Um, it's finding a body. This is narrative expectation. We know it's going to happen. You are watching a war movie. And the young soldier says, when I get home, I'm going to actually leave the army. And, and yes, Grandpa's vineyard is just waiting. And by the way, my wife is pregnant. It's, it's due in two days, etc. You just know, okay. 30 seconds and he's going to get it in the head. That's it. Um, that's, that's narrative expectation. 
And that is, again, what you look for in the layering. How many times have you followed narrative expectation? And every time you do, you are going to have to break it. And this means that when you rewrite a book, you are really rewriting a book. You are not just changing a sentence here or there. You are doing major, major rewrites. However, it's not quite as bad as it seems because the plot, the outline, the book is actually there. So even changing um, the major characters, um, certainly changing the minor characters so they too are real and, and not just cliche, even changing the plot um, and various aspects of the plot um, or even changing it from first person to third person um, requires this work than you think because you're working on something which is already there. It is so much easier um, to remould something that you've got on paper than to put it down. But it's this process of layering which creates a good book. It was very, very interesting looking at Terry Pratchett's last book, um, which he didn't, he didn't quite finish. It was one of the Tiffany Aching books. Um, it was, it was finished and they published it. Um, but his wife and friends wrote um, an afterward to it and said that, look, the way he wrote, and it was an enormous shock for me realizing that he wrote exactly the same way that I write. Um, you write the book. You've got the book. You write the book. But then you start doing the layering. Then you start, well, they called it tinkering, the tinkering the book. And reading that book, you could see so many places where the writing was thin, where he'd actually just hurried over a bit, obviously, intending to go back to it later. But he was working to actually get the whole outline down so he could really start focusing and working on it. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by the fact that you do draft, you know, do so many drafts because you have written so many books and so I'm wondering are you resting them between drafts working on other things or are you focusing on one no so focusing focusing absolutely um completely and absolutely on one book even to the extent where I get really irritated if anyone comes in um leave the phone off the hook etc I don't look at emails um I focus absolutely on that book um if I'm interrupted um, in any major way, if I have to go away, et cetera, et cetera, it always takes me three days to get back into it. But those three days have to be done. You have to keep working for those three days. And suddenly on day three, right, it's coming, it's coming. Um, always um, on day two, I think I'll never write again. This doesn't work, this doesn't work. And no, it's not working. You have to be prepared to actually trash those days when it doesn't work. But if you don't do those days... You don't get to that magic point at the end of day three when suddenly the book is there, you are standing in that universe um, and you could actually see the whole planes and images actually stretching out before you and you know, yes, this is the book I am in it. All I have to do is have to write this down. Wow. So again, that's a not quite accurate image because when you write, you never quite know what is around the corner. Once you find your character's or even the plot are doing unexpected things, you know you are really in the book because, again, they're doing what they would be doing 
rather than what your expectation is that they will be doing. So once your book starts actually taking on a life of its own and doing things you did not expect, um, yes, then then um, then you know it's working. The one I'm writing now, um, I thought I thought a character was in fact going going to be um, a strike a strike the um, not not eerie, um, but. But, but 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 yes, the character that you're you're deeply deeply uncertain about, and that's still the case. But I hadn't realised it's actually also very funny, incredibly funny, and I had not realised that until this morning when I looked at him again, and realised yes, the reader is going to know exactly what he's well no actually they're not going to know exactly what he's doing because otherwise it'd be predictable. Um, but in a lot of the things he's doing. Um, yes, the reader is going to know um, that this is pretense, um, and it's going to be funny, which is good because um, the book, the book, badly needed humour, um, and this this character is actually going to become more important. And yes, extremely, extremely A good funny. Moment. So, A do you write every moment, day? Yeah. Um, if day? I can. Okay. If I can, um, every day I answer emails or answer letters. Otherwise, it just gets. Um, uh, just far, far, far too much for me. Um, so yes, I have to have a couple of hours every day at least answering emails and letters. Um, I do now have help answering letters because there's just no way on earth I can answer them all myself. Partic- um, I do answer the very, very personal ones, but an enormous number of them are from um, people who just want to know how to write a picture book or where you get your inspiration or things like that. The ones... The ones were, sort of bluntly, they're too lazy to actually go and keep reading on my website, which is where they've got my email address or my other address. So rather than actually read the information on the website, it is easier to write to me, um, including all of the emails from kids who have got assignments and think they're going to get an A if they get an email back from the author or the teachers who have actually said that everyone has to actually email the author with their comments or the teachers who actually then send um, 28 projects for me to look at and comment on because they're all so good. Um, those <laughs> actually take oh, a heck of a lot of time. Yeah. Um, and look, as much as possible, I do I do answer them myself. I've got a period coming up, though, where um, I've got several surgeries, etc. Um, um, so, yes. Um, but where it's not answered by me, um, it's obvious. It's, it's, it's signed by, by someone else. Okay. And how do you decide if a story is going to be for children, young adults, adults? I mean, does that just all come – does that come with a contractual obligation or does that come with, okay, I'm, this is a picture? Um, it's usually clear from the beginning by the age of the protagonist. Right. And that's really the only criteria, is the age of the protagonist. Um, we underrate kids. We really do. No one says to a kid, you can't watch Game of Thrones because you won't understand it. We say you can't watch Game of Thrones because we know they will understand it mm. and we don't want them to have to cope with various other things yet. Mm. Um, kids are not just as capable of adults with com- complex scenes. They're often more eager for it. Um, the job of a kid is to understand 
what the adult world is like. They have a hunger for deep things. Adults often are just trying to get from one mortgage payment to the rest and want escapism. Now, kids want escapism too. They certainly want, but it needs to be good escapism. Um, deep, deep, cleverly funny escapism. But they also want even more than adults, um, books that have got heart and substance. Um, in this year's um, Weber and Croc Awards, for example, the Kids' Choice Awards, yeah. 10 Years for Hitler um, won the Kids' Choice Awards. Now, all the other books um, in the age groups were funny, like short escapist. And then suddenly here in the middle is this extremely large, very complex, thematically challenging book mm. that kids have voted for, Pennies for Hitler. Um, Hitler's daughter um, was on the list for, for every year for 10 years was a winner, yeah. um, the, one, the one before it. And again, it's, 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 it's a challenging book. By the way, the books can only be there for 10 years before they're put in the hall of fame and they're not shortlisted anymore. But no, um, it is so interesting in Kids' Choice Awards seeing, um, yes, of course, the incredibly popular, incredibly funny ones are there, but then suddenly there is this incredibly thematically dense, big book um, that kids love and love incredibly deeply, and these are the books um, that change them. These are the books that live with them all their lives. That's what I wanted to ask you about, actually, because the seventh book in the Matilda saga was released this week, and I find it a really interesting series because it combines, you know, history and that sort of generational saga, and it doesn't shy from big themes, politics, difficult storylines, um, with a suggested reading age of 10 plus. So I'm interested in how you approach writing stories like that for children. Um, it took me a while to realise that kids are actually interested in adult guidance as well. Hmm. Um, of course they're interested in adult guidance. They don't get to know what's happening half the time. It happens after they've gone to bed. Hmm. They want to know what adults do. So in the Matilda series, there are always characters who are either the age of the target audience or a bit older. Kids, kids are very happy with um, protagonists who are four or five or six years older hmm. than them because, again, they want to know what it's like to be that age. Mm. But in the Matilda saga, um, yes, some of the protagonists are going to be older as well. And in fact, because the series starts in 1892, um, the characters who were young, I think Matilda is 12 at the beginning of the series, um, the characters, um, we're now in um, 1979, um, the characters, of course, age as the series goes on. So again, there, there are more young people added to it. But um, the people who start with the Waltz and Matilda really want to know what happens to Matilda, what happens to Nancy of the Ozefko and mm-hmm. Cynthia McAlpine. So we see their lives progress. But yes, it's, it's certainly thematically ambitious. What I wanted to show in that series is the history of our nation from the point of view of the people usually left out of the history books. Um, It's Australia's history from the point of view of the women, the indigenous people, um, Afghan, Chinese community, etc., etc. And, of course, the voiceless change um, as the history, um, as, as the series continues. But, yes, it is deliberately trying to tell the history 
personal point of view of um, two interlocked communities, three interlocked families. Um, but again, the the history that you may not get reading the history books, the history that was very carefully hidden. And in fact, the latest book, the one I just sent to Nisa, um, in unravelling who those bodies are under the church that is burnt in Facing the Flame, um, so many of Australia's secrets get, get unravelled. The things that as a nation we don't really want to look at in, in our past. Mm. Um, as Fish thinks she is looking for a serial killer, but in reality what she is finding are the things we do not want to see. Ooh, that sounds very intriguing. Do you? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, hope, I hope this is always the moment where I'm actually sort of biting my fingernails, waiting for Lisa to read it. <laughs> Do you find though that, um, like, because your other release this year was uh, Goodbye, Mr. Hitler, which is the last in your Hitler trilogy? Do you find that parents? Because what I find interesting is the number of parents that I speak to. I have a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old son. And um, parents will often say to me, oh, I can't believe that you let him read that. Do you know what I mean? Not necessarily talking about your books, clearly, but other things um, that they think, you know, are not suitable for the age group. So I'm just wondering if you ever find that gatekeeper aspect No, absolutely the contrary. Mm. Um, I've never, ever had a letter or an email like that. Mm. Um, With Goodbye Mr Hitler, I'm starting to get emails and letters from parents and teachers who have said they're crying as they write them, Mm. and the book needs to be read by every child, be in every school and be in every library, Mm. and it's the most important book they've ever read. Um, Every child must have this book. So no... um, but Goodbye, Mr. Hitler is a book about incredibly hard things. Mm. But as one email this week said, woven through it on every page, there is love and joy and hope. Mm. And um, she said that books, so many books on this, yes, they may have happy endings, but the books are just so grim. Mm. But in this one, though, there is there, even, even at the worst of times, there is incredible love, incredible joy, and incredible hope um, and forgiveness throughout throughout the book. Is that a conscious um, thing on your part, or is that just comes out of the story? Um, it's partly conscious. Mm. It is true that um, I have a very strong belief that yes, bad things happen, horrendous things happen. Um, at the moment, to me, actually, something mildly. Horrendous is, is actually happening, which is why I'm facing a year at least where I won't be able to walk and several surgeries. Oh. Um, <laughs> this not is not good. good. No, it's not good. But um, a very wise man told me some years ago that the other side of love is loss. And we need to look at those together. Whenever you look at loss, see the love. Whenever you look at love, realize that... Um, Everything is transitory. Mm. But he said, hold it at a distance. Imagine the loss. Imagine the tragedy. You are holding it in your hand as a ball, and it is out there at the outstretched of your hand. Now, all around it, you can still see the beauty of the world, Mm. um, the love and the happiness. And it is so easy when bad things happen just to focus on that. 
and to forget all of the love and joy and literally transcendence that is there as well. He told me that, in fact, a few weeks before my husband was breathing and after I resuscitated him, was taken by ambulance into Canberra Hospital. And I followed the ambulance in the car. And it was the most beautiful afternoon I have ever seen. Um, The sun was shining gold through the tussocks and the hills had that extraordinary, almost radiant purple colour. Um, and the line of the hills and the sky was almost as someone had scribbled it, and it was beautiful. And I remember every single second of its beauty because he had taught me to focus. Yes, I was focusing very deeply on my fear and my grief, but I was holding it at a distance. And because the adrenaline meant I was absolutely, completely there, Mm. I saw everything and I remember it, and it was so beautiful and that is what I have tried to put in goodbye Mr. Hooker the the tragedy is there the anguish is there but there is also love and beauty and it is very very deeply part of my philosophy we should not turn away from hard things particularly for kids kids know they're happening Um, they actually get upset if they if they can't if, if, if people try to hide them away, kids know these things happen. They need to know about them. They want to know about them. But to find a way to show them that, yes, bad things may happen, but when bad things happen, there usually are people who want to help. Yeah. They may not be able to help the first people or the second people, but there will be people who want to help. There will be beauty. There will be transcendence. Um, always. Um, yes, focus on the bad because you need to to, to, to actually cope with it. Um, but I'm not saying don't look at it. On the contrary, keep it there in front of you and do not turn away because if you turn away, it's going to weep out at you some other time. Yeah. Don't turn yeah. away from it. But remember everything that is going around it as well. Mm. That is excellent words to live by. Thank you for that. Um, well, that, well, it is one of the things that I think is deeply important for kids to learn. Yeah. It's how they learn resilience. Bad things happen, but these are ways that you get through it. Okay. I'm going to just think about that for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, would you like to talk about something completely different in picture books? I'm just going to need a little moment. No, I'm actually going to ask you now about yeah. your... Um, role as children's laureate and whether or not that changed the way that you, you know, approach, because it's a big job, that. So um, look, it was, but it was also pretty much doing um, what I'd always done and, in fact, what I've kept on doing since. Um, and even if I can't walk in the future, I will keep on doing it. There is no way I'm going to let this stop me. Um the one thing I did learn, though, was after about my third appearance as laureate, and um, people people just looked a little bit unsatisfied, I think is probably the word, oh. even if the talk was good. And I realized, no, my job as laureate is to thank people. That's what it is to be given a title. Um, it's not just to enthuse people, etc. It's not just to um, get people into reading and all those things. Um, the job of a laureate is to thank the extraordinary people and that, that really is everyone that you talk to 
um, when you're talking to teachers, librarians, parents, etc., um, to actually thank them for um, being there. Um, they've the people who come to see you as lawyers are those who are slogging away at it. Look, people often talk about tireless workers for kids. I've never met one. Everyone who works for kids is usually very, very, very tired. Kids are exhausted. But you keep on doing it because it matters. It matters more than anything else. Um, it's at the heart of what it is to be most deeply human, is to... Um, to actually cherish a young and um, create um, resilient, happy, um, imaginative, empathetic um, adults. Mm. This is the most important job we have as adults. Mm, um, so yes, as always, I learned that we need to thank um, those people who care enough um, to come to listen to people in, in how to be inspired or, or maybe to do it even even better or even just um, for validation being with the community of their peers, mm-hmm. all of whom are very, very tired too. And yeah. um, <laughs> Yes, may possibly be having, um, yes, a couple of days off just to talk to each other and have a glass of wine and have dinner in the evening and enjoy themselves. Yes, true. Um, now, your Twitter feed is a really interesting place. It's like a glorious mix of books, writing, and, of course, wombats. Um, are you a fan of social media? Um, I've only been doing it for about three months. I know, it was, but you've it was really taken to it. <laughs> um, so, look, I really don't understand it yet. I'm starting to understand it. Um, to my utter surprise, after being very contemptuous of, oh, look, you can't, you can't say something at 140 characters, um, I've realised, in fact, you can. You, 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 you can. you can do a lot. And it's probably better putting it on Twitter than continuing to mutter it to my husband. Um, but I don't really understand social media yet. But I'm beginning to have the most enormous admiration for it. Um, we have lost most of our sense of community in the past 30 or 40 years. Um, even with students, so many are exhausted with um, part-time jobs just simply to eat or survive. Um, People are working longer hours, commutes are so long, there just isn't the time for the community it was before. Social media is creating communities again, and that really matters. This is, this is again, who we are as humans. We work together, we form small groups together, we form large groups together, we cooperate. And I think social media is possibly um, the saviour of, of humanity, because, again, it allows us to, to form communities. Mm. Well, you know, long may you reign with your wombats is all I can say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so we're going to finish up today with our final question that we ask all authors, and I would say that you could probably do this standing on your head, but what are your top three tips for aspiring authors? Never believe your own press releases and (laughs) never, ever, ever um, say, this is my style, and get furious at someone who says, but look, it doesn't work. Um, you cannot fall in love with your own style. You cannot fall in love with your own words. You are not writing for yourself. If you want to write for yourself, write a diary. Um, but when you write for other people, remember, you are writing for them. 
you are not writing to show how intellectual you are, how clever you are, how much you've actually um, managed to transcend your disease um, or, or the, um, the horror of your childhood. Um, you are not writing for yourself. You are writing for the reader. You are writing for the reader in terms of the theme, plot, and the way you put the words on the page and what you want is completely and utterly irrelevant. You are writing what they need. That's the first one. The second one is, if you're not crying, it's not working. But I'm not talking tears because it's unhappy. It is so easy to get an effect by actually killing off much-loved characters to consider very, very well. Someone complained whenever you actually had a poor, deserving girl, yes, she, she was probably dead by the end of the book. Um, don't, um, don't get cheap effects by doing that. Um, instead, if you can make yourself cry because something is beautiful, because it is funny, because it is transcendent, then you know you are writing. Patrick White said if he was crying at the end of the book, he knew it worked. And for me, it's the same thing. Um, if you cry because of the sheer power of the book, you know this book is working. And number three, where, more or less where I began, um, always, always break narrative expectation, what the reader expects. And that is important in novels. Um, you need to break reader expectation with every plot device and every character. Um, it's especially necessary in picture books where every time you turn the picture, a page in a picture book, um, the reader cannot know what is going to happen next. You must have that tension as they turn the page. No one has ever turned pages to say, oh, isn't that lovely description? I'm going to turn the page to get more description. They turn the page sometimes because you have created a world they don't want to leave. Um, sometimes they turn it to find out what happens next. But it has to be what happens next. If they can predict what is happening, then you failed as a writer. Okay. Fantastic. Terrific tips. Thank you so much for your time today, Jackie. It's been wonderful. Um, everyone can visit your terrific website at JackieFrench.com, which has is full of writing tips, advice, like seriously, pages, pages. Um, so, uh, yes, thank you very much for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd love to create your own picture book, a popular five-week course in writing picture books will show you how. In less than a few hours a week, you'll discover what you need to know about point of view in a picture book, structure and pace, as well as language and rhythm, finding the right voice, working with illustrators, publishing options and much more. Complete it online for ultimate convenience and receive personalised tutor feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash picturebooks. Oh, 
wow, what an awesome interview. She's such a classic, isn't she? I cannot believe she's like over 200 books and she's so experienced and yet she still drafts and redrafts and redrafts and redrafts. That's commitment. Commitment. Well, I just love the fact that, well, you know, it's the, the explanation of her process I think is is so great in the sense that it's, mm. you know, she's she's what happens next, what happens next, what happens next is the first draft. It's all about the story. It's all about just yes. getting that story down and where is it going and what's it going to be. And then, you know, it's layering. And the other thing I find fascinating about her drafting process was, you know, where she talks about the fact that she can, like, she'll, she'll draft the story and then decide that the main character is not the main character. And then, in fact, the yeah. whole point of view should change and it should be the person standing next to the main character. And I think that that's a lesson for all of us in a lot of ways. Um, and it's something that I'm probably learning at the moment because I've been working on this story and it's not working for me. And I think part of the reason it's not working for me is that I've chosen the wrong main character. And then, in actual fact, the person that I've got in there as the sort of second, you know, the, the, the best mate is actually the main character. And if I bring yeah. that character forward and, and change the point of view, I think the story will work a lot better. And that's, I think, something that we could probably, like it's worth having a look at when you're actually writing your, your stories. If it's not working, is it because you're actually in the wrong point of view and what yeah. you need to be doing is is that character that you love, that you've written as the best mate, the kind of comic offset, the whatever, yeah. the comic relief, is that actually your main character? So, you know, it's um, there's a lot of reasons why a, st- why a story's, you know, not coming together, but it's definitely one to consider. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good point, actually. It's something I'm trying to convince someone who I'm, I'm reading their manuscript because he has been writing it for years and years and years and years and years and the it, it, elements of it work. But one of the things I'm trying to convince him is just to take one of the chapters and write it from a different character's point of view. And just as an exercise to discover whether, in fact, it flows a lot better, um, as just as you said, maybe it's, it's a different, char- different character who needs to be the protagonist. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, wonderful. Well, of course, you can find the show notes and transcript um, uh, at so you want to be a writer.com.au. In the meantime, we're going to be catching up tomorrow, Al. We shall be sharing a glass of bubbles or two. What is your choice of celebratory drink? Uh, I do. I do like a good champagne. I, I have nice. to say, and I'm, when I say champagne, I do mean I'm not talking sparkling. I'm talking. I like French, and it has to be expensive. It has to be okay, good. thanks for warning me. <laughs> yeah, no, really, seriously. Um, very. <laughs> Very fond of that. Um, probably a little too fond, if the truth be known. So I don't allow myself to go there very often because I do find myself also, I don't know about you, but I don't know if it's the bubbles, but I do get quite silly very quickly. Yes. So I have yes. to be quite sensible with it. But, you know, generally speaking, I am a beer girl. Okay. Well, I'm sure there'll be many options when we catch up and I look forward to it. <laughs> but apart from that, what do you got up to? Uh, what have you got happening in writing-wise in the coming week until we chat on the podcast again? Um, what have I got coming up? Jeez, uh, you always put me on the spot with these difficult questions, Valerie. It's, so um, <laughs> it's a really difficult question. Okay. I can't, I can't remember what I'm doing. No, do you know what I am doing? So so the, the reality of my life right now is that I'm on a timetable to count down of the fact that school is, is, is 
finishing within about, I, don't, I think I've got oh, about yes. 10 days or something ridiculous. Oh. Um, ridiculous, let's face it. So wow. I am going to be trying extremely hard to finish the manuscript that I am working on. That's yeah. what I'm trying to do. And I probably have about 10,000 words to do. So that's my, oh, wow. that's my main aim. I want to finish because you know it. Well, it will. I've just been so um, I've been so busy this year with you know I had two books come out. The books came out in the US. I, I just feel like this year has been very much a promotional year, and the writing has very much taken. And and I, I can't stress enough how much of your mind space that promotional stuff can take up. Oh yeah. Um, and, you know, I've been writing, like I'm, I must have written about 30,000 words in guest posts and interviews yeah. and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I've written a lot of stuff, but it hasn't been on an actual manuscript. So I haven't finished one this year and that's very unlike me. I usually have at least one done a year. I haven't finished one. I've got three that are half that are halfway, you know, halfway to nowhere. Um, so, yeah, I really want to finish the year having finished one so that I yes. feel like I'm going into next year with, you know, something to, I don't know, fix and sell, hopefully. Do you think you will finish before school breaks up? Yes. Oh, yeah, I will. Because, de- you know, I'm good at a deadline. I probably yeah. needed a, I probably needed someone to just, like, set me a deadline about six months ago and I would have had it finished. Um, but for some reason I just – I mean, normally I set my own, but I, I just – it's drifted this year for various reasons. Um, but, no, I have a definite deadline, so it will be finished, yeah. Deadlines are incredibly good motivators. Oh, they are. They are. I find. Absolutely. Yeah. So a reward. What about you? What are you well, going to be doing? Will there be well, banoffee pie in your future? No, because I think I've been eating too many of these sorts of things lately. <laughs> so I think I should lay off the banoffee pie for a little bit longer. I might get stuck back into it in 2018. But now that you've mentioned that school holidays are coming up in about 10 days or whatever, that's making me very excited that the kids from across the road will be disappearing um, because they go away every school holidays and this is much excitement for me. <laughs> Those poor children. Do they know that you sit there, you know, plotting their demise? (laughs) I don't plot their demise. I just like it when it, like the quiet when they go. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) And I am doing a lot of catch up because basically for the last, oh, five weeks. It has been nonstop on the go every single day, unrelenting. Uh, and I'm just looking forward to a couple of days here and there without appointments. And I just want to, you know, go to the cafe and have a cup of tea just mm. to not be at always on the go and doing something or, or writing something. So I'm keen for that this coming week, just to recharge a bit. Anyway, uh, where do we find you online now? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? <laughs> You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, feel free to connect with me on Facebook. I'm also in the podcast listener group. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook, and we'd love to connect with you there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 